I would just like to start off by officially, de by officially declaring it is now allergy season. I don't, I don't know if you, you guys have experienced that yet. I didn't have allergies until after college. I, it, I blame it on Ohio. Uh, any, anybody from Ohio in here? You have really bad allergies? You're not, oh, you are kind of from Ohio, right? You were born there, so. My son raised his hand. I was like, oh, that kind of hit me. It's, it's, it's been a while. A year ago, I, I've got some good buddies who are preachers, and we encourage each other. We uh, give each other ideas, and we, we pray with each other about, about our churches and um, what we talk about and the sermons that we go through and, and the, you know, the parts of the Bible that we preach and that kind of thing. And one of my buddies a year or two ago recommended a book to me called Between Two Trees. It's written by Shane Wood. And one of the things that I think is really important for us as a church as we go through and as we study scripture is that we have really good um, ideas about what it means to respond to God and why we respond to him the way that we do. Our theology matters, the things that we believe about things that scripture talks about. And so over the next few weeks, we're going to be in a sermon series that really is about the theology of sin, the theology of the incarnation, Jesus coming in the flesh, the theology of transformation, what it means for our lives to be changed because they, they can be changed and they are changed by God, and how we respond to the things that go on in our world and the way that God has called us to, to live out our faith. And so I'm really excited about that. I'm really excited about looking, uh, looking into uh, the Bible and, and seeing it kind of holistically and how it's bookended by these two trees in the very beginning and the very end. So in Genesis chapter 1 and 3, there's this tree, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And so we have this tree over here, and we maybe have some ideas about that and what happened there. We're actually going to read from Genesis 3 here in a little bit, talk about the impact of that tree. And then all the way at the end in Revelation chapter 22, this is the last chapter of, of the Bible, at least the way that we have it uh, centered and uh, written out uh, in, our, in our texts. And in Revelation chapter two, 22, there's the tree of life. Uh, the tree of life, it did, you know, sometimes the, the imagery doesn't always work. Just on a side note, the tree of life did exist alongside the tree of the knowledge of good and evil in the Garden of Eden, but we never had access to that. In Revelation chapter 22, however, we do. And in between those two trees is where we live life, the course of human history and all of its ups and downs, all of all the things that we experience in life. Um, and the entire, the entire uh, existence that we experience is kind of in the ups of, and downs of good versus evil. And whether or not you think good is more prevalent in the world or evil is more prevalent in the world, I think all of us can agree that most of the time life is not lived exactly as it should be. Or at least we don't experience life as it seems like it could be. And there's a good reason for that. Sin and the consequence of death breaks the world. In fact, we can think of it as an uncreation in contrast to what God created life to be. But just because we know the answer to the problems of the world is sin doesn't mean that we know what the problem sin creates really is. And our level of understanding of what the problem actually is affects our ability to make sense of the solution that God provides. And, and sometimes I, I don't even know that we are cognizant of why the good news is actually good news. And when I say that, I'm not talking about other people, I'm talking about me too. Sometimes I need that reminder of, of what sin actually does, how it breaks the world, how it uncreates life, um, and why the gospel of Jesus is so important and so powerful. Because in between the two trees, God introduces a third tree, and that's the cross. And this, this tree is necessary because it bears the fruit of resurrection that enables transformation. 
Something that God not only desires for us to experience, but also equips and enables us to experience both through Jesus and the Holy Spirit as we move from one tree to other in the timeline of our lives. Transformation is kind of one of those tricky things because we know that, that God enables that. He know he wants us to go through that. Um, but not everyone is super appreciative of the fact when you point out that they need transformation in their lives. I don't know if you've ever tried this before. Um, maybe you could do this this afternoon or with somebody who's sitting right next to you if you want to. You can have this conversation. Just point out something to them that they need to change in their lives. <laughs> and just say, hey, this is, you, you know, this is what you need to change. So... Um, great, very healthy for, for relationships. Um, so, you know, marriage, you know, uh, husband and wives, you know, make sure this afternoon you talk about, hey, these are some of the serious changes you need to make in your life. And just, if you would, just, just kick, kicks and giggles. Let me know how that goes. You know, I would love to, if, if you want to, just record it on video. That would be great. You could put it on social media. You could start a TikTok. Uh, it would be, it'd be great. Sometimes it's not always well received, but sometimes we're offended because we misunderstand, we're so focused on how it makes us feel about ourselves, and maybe the same, some of the things that we actually know that are wrong and we already need to fix, and we're kind of embarrassed and ashamed and guilty about, about those things. But often we're offended because we misunderstand what sin does and how far-reaching the effect it has on us really is. And, and so maybe we would handle that conversation a little bit differently if, if, if we thought about that a little bit more, or a little bit better in terms of how Scripture teaches us what it actually is. Most of the time, when people talk about sin, they talk about sin in terms of a mistake. Maybe, maybe you've heard that, you know, we make a mistake. And that, that is such a more palatable way of approaching, hey, I know, I know you didn't mean to do that, or I know you made that mistake. Um, and, and listen, I'm, just to be very specific, I'm not talking about the general consequences of a world broken by sin. I'm not talking about other people's sin against us, but I'm talking about the things that we do, how charitable we are with our own sin. Um, I had an error in judgment, you know, I made a mistake, would be fine if it wasn't more often the case that we know ahead of time what we're going to do is wrong. What I mean is sometimes we plan our mistakes, sometimes we put our schedules, you know, we center our schedules around our mistakes, sometimes we buy a plane ticket to fly to our mistakes, sometimes we buy our mistakes at the, floor, at, at the store, sometimes we intentionally look up our mistakes on our phone. Like, we, we go out of our way to find our mistakes. And so somewhere along the line, our definition of the way we think and we need to think about sin is probably needs to be a little bit more deep than just a mistake. Sometimes we do our mistakes on purpose. That, that means it's more than a mistake. And the reason that it breaks our relationship with God is not because we break some sort of arbitrary rule or something that we didn't know, you know, oh, I, I messed up and I, I made a mistake. I made an error in judgment. But because we break what it means to be human. And more specifically, what it means to be humans that are made in the image of God. Sin actually changes our state of being. So in Genesis chapter 3, this is one of the biggest chunks of scripture that we're going to be in this morning. So we're going to be in Genesis chapter 3, and we're going to be in Matthew chapter 21. So those are going to be um, our biggest chunks of text. So it's in, in Genesis chapter 3 and verse 1. We read, and some of you are very familiar with this, this account. Now the serpent was more crafty than any of the wild animals the Lord God had made. This is at the very beginning of, of creation. And he said to the woman, did God really say you must not eat from any tree in the garden? And the woman said to the serpent, we may eat fruit from the trees in the garden, but God did say you must not eat fruit from the tree that is in the middle of the garden, and you must not touch it or you will die. You won't die. The serpent said to the woman, for God knows that when you eat it from it, your eyes will be open and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. 
When the woman saw that the fruit of the tree was good for food and pleasing to the eye and also desirable for gaining wisdom, she took some and ate it. She also gave some to her husband who was with her and he ate it. Then the eyes of both of them were opened and they realized they were naked, so they sewed fig leaves together and made coverings for themselves. Then the man and his wife heard the sound of the Lord God as he was walking in the garden in the cool of the day, and they hid from the Lord God among the trees of the garden. But the Lord God called to the man, where are you? And he answered, I, hear, I heard you in the garden, and I was afraid because I was naked, so I hid. We had just gotten started, and humanity was not yet ready for this tree. God was simply honest about its existence. Um, very possible at some point down the road, after enough time, that with God, we would be ready to make the right choice when it came to us having the responsibility of knowing good and evil. We don't know 100% that that was the case, um, but we, we know that God inherently rejects evil at every turn. And as part of our character and nature, the part that God created us with, maybe at some point, if we had spent enough time with God, we would be ready for that, but it wasn't, we weren't ready then. Um, but in our hurry to get what we think we want, we bought into the lie and sin broke our union with God. But it doesn't stop there. We don't become neutral ground because we are now separated in our relationship with God. We become united with something else. And this is why Adam and Eve hid from God. The awareness and subsequent shame of their nakedness became a stronger influence over the trajectory of their lives rather than the goodness of their union with God that they had experienced up to that point. I mean, how, how more transparent can you be? If, if, if you were Adam and Eve, would, would the first thing that you do, you know, would you have hid from God knowing what you do now and how, how often? No, like, you gotta, you got to hide in plain sight. you got to act like nothing happened, right? I mean, that's, that's what you do. Did you not learn? If you're a kid, like, just clo close your ears for right now, if, if, if you would. you got to play it off. You know, so you're there, and you're, you're in front of them. You, you see what I'm saying? That Adam and Eve, their first thing, oh, we need to hide because we're ashamed of our nakedness. Because they couldn't handle what, what, was, what was going on and what was happening in their hearts and, and, and in their minds. Um, you know, the thing, that, the thing that helps law enforcement more than anything else is that criminals are stupid. I mean, cr criminals are just dumb. And, and, and a lot of things that you would think that they would think of ahead of time that maybe that, oh, is there a camera, you know, watching my, my every move? No, they just kind of do those things. And it's because of how, how much sin blinds us to the truth and to reality. It unites us with something, something else. It gets us so wrapped up in the lie that whatever evil activity is, seems to be more beneficial at the time, you miss obvious things that don't let you get away with it in life. Um, I, I'm not suggesting that God wouldn't have noticed, like if Adam and Eve had just played it off. Oh, nothing. No, we're, we're, we're good. You're just kind of standing next to the tree, ready, ready for their walk with God. I'm not suggesting that God wouldn't have noticed the missing fruit or the change in demeanor. Um, that's why parents, kids, that's why parents always know. We always, parents and grandparents, you know, we, we always know what's going on. We have eyes in the back of our head. Um, just the lack of recognition of how pervasive and completely sin had deeply impacted Adam and Eve at that time. They were completely unaware. And the same thing happens with us. Our sin breaks our union with God and it unites us in another way. It's more than a mistake. It unites us with death. That's why sin is such a an evil thing that God wants to get rid of and transform us from in our life because it unites us with something other than him. It unites us with a consequence. Eating the fruit in the garden was a union. It wasn't just disunion with God. It was a union with sin and death. 
And you think about that. You try to separate yourself from something that you've eaten. It doesn't go well normally, especially when something you've eaten tries to separate itself from you. You know, get a little food poison, you know, whatever, whatever thing may, may, I mean, that's an ugly, destructive thing. And so when this happens, when Adam and Eve participate in this thing, I mean, think about it. Well, God could have just snapped his fingers and, and, and done away with it. But they have united themselves with something else. I mean, you think about if you just immediately tried to take all the nutrients that you received from your breakfast this morning, you know, and just, or all the food that you've ever eaten and just rip that out of your body, you know, all the benefits of that, you're gone. You, there'd be nothing there, you, right? I mean, you would immediately collapse on the floor, you'd be done. Kicking Adam and Eve out of the garden was the beginning of God's redemptive process because he knew, hey, if I just snap my fingers, it's going to destroy them in, in the process. But if I separate them from the tree of life, if I keep them from, you know, establishing eternity in brokenness, I can begin my redemptive process to these people. This union of death, as we mentioned before, is why there's a third tree in between the other two, the cross. And it's why the cross leads to the resurrection, because this defeats the power of sin and grave and the grave. And the way this works, and, and the way that the problem and the solution I identified happens decades before the cross, and it's a no less significant event than the cross. It's the birth of Jesus. And I get, I, it's not Christmas. How many months till Christmas is it? It's not, not Christmas yet. Some of y'all got a countdown. I know you do. Don't, don't act like you don't. You're ready to decorate in August. Um, and the incarnation of Christ, Emmanuel, which means God with us, was itself an indication of what the problem of sin is and what the solution must be. So God creates. He creates union without any destruction, a part of his creation. And then sin uncreates. It rips apart that union and invites destruction into the world. And the first part of the solution was the incarnation, God becoming flesh and dwelling among us. Because we are participating as people who have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God and are now united with death. We are participating in something that God cannot. God will not sin. He doesn't change in that way. He will not sin, and God cannot die. However, by becoming fully God and fully man, Jesus dying an undeserved death on behalf of the world breaks the power of sin and death as a final consequence. Therefore, death is no longer the end, but just the transition to a brand new beginning, to the second tree. The incarnation is illustrative of the problem why sin means missing the mark. Some of you know that, like that's the textbook definition of sin and how it's used in scripture. It means missing the mark. Jesus, who has unity with divinity, Jesus is God and man. And humanity, who has unity with death, our world and lives have been corrupted. This contrast of the incarnation with our uncreation illustrates both the problem and the solution. It's good news because it means we aren't stuck with the results of the first tree and puts a spotlight firmly on the path to the second tree. But shining a light on the problem isn't always welcome. It's kind of like pointing out to somebody some of the transformational changes that they need in their life. You shine a spotlight on somebody who's been asleep, and what do they do? You ever done that? Like shine, shine your cell phone light on somebody or a flashlight or something like that? I mean, sure, surely you had to have woken up a friend like that before at some point, or at least you should have at some point. Um, it's, it's bright. It's disorienting. It's like, what in the world is going on? You know, you don't, you don't enjoy that. It's like, you guys remember the show American Idol? Is that still on? Is that a thing anymore? You remember how at the very beginning, you know, people would come on and they would sing and they would do their song and the judges would look at them and they would say, that was terrible. Like there was nothing good about what you just did. 
How, how in the world have you gotten this far? And you're like, oh, no, I'm amazing. My friends tell me I'm incredible. You know, my mom said I could do anything I want when I grow up. And, and I'm going to prove the haters wrong. You know, it's going to be not, not everybody likes a light shining on, um, shining on what needs to be changed and transformed in their life. And Jesus teaches about this. And he talks about how this, how this works. He calls out the religious leaders of the day because of this. Um, because the way that they were interacting and treating and teaching the people of that day ignored, ignored this fact. In Matthew chapter 21, starting in verse 33, Jesus teaches them a parable. He says there was a landowner, and this is, Jesus is talking about God. He's talking about uh, the patriarchs. He's talking about the prophets that he sends. And he says there's this land, landowner who planted a vineyard. He put a wall around it, dug a wine press in it, and built a watchtower. Then he rented the vineyard to some farmers and moved to another place. He's talking about God, and he's talking about God's people. When the harvest time approached, he sent his servants to the tenants to collect his fruit. The tenants seized his servants. They beat one, killed another, and stoned a third. Then he sent other servants to them more than the first time, and the tenants treated them the same way. He's talking about the prophets. He's talking about the patriarchs. He's talking about the good kings of Israel. Last of all, he sent his son to them. They will respect my son, he said. God is sending Jesus. When the tenants saw the son, they said to each other, This is the heir. Come, let's kill him and take his inheritance. So they took him and threw him out of the vineyard and killed him. Therefore, when the owner of the vineyard comes, what will he do to those tenants? He will bring those wretches to a wretched end, they replied. This is Jesus talking to the religious leaders who are calling out what's going to happen. And he will rent the vineyard to other tenants who will give him his share of the crop at harvest time. Jesus said to them, Have you never read in the scriptures the stone the builders rejected has become the cornerstone? The Lord has done this, and it is marvelous in our eyes. Therefore, I tell you that the kingdom of God will be taken away from you and given to a people who will produce its fruit. Anyone who falls on this stone will be broken to pieces. Anyone on whom it falls will be crushed. When the chief priests and the Pharisees heard Jesus' parables, they knew he was talking about them. They looked for a way to arrest him, but they were afraid of the crowd because the people held that he was a prophet. Rather than understanding how Jesus had brought about transformational change and how he was destroying the power of sin and death and the consequence of our life, I mean, this, this is how the religious leaders of the day responded to him. They said, rather than, rather than being called out for what we've done wrong, we're, we're, we don't like this spotlight <laughs> that's shining on us, and this is, this is how we're going to respond. We're just going to get rid of it. We're going we're gonna to take care of it. So the spotlight shining in my eyes, what I'm going to do, I'm going to take it, I'm going to throw it away, I'm going to turn it off. I'm going to immediately get as far away as possible as I can. This is the reaction that we have when we don't understand what sin does to our hearts and to our minds. And this is the reaction that we have when we have family and friends, cohorts, people that we're trying to share the gospel of Jesus with. Um, sometimes the way in which we share it, it seems like a really bright spotlight shining in our, in our eyes. And it can be tough to see the path forward in, in that way. And yet what Jesus does is he consistently, he consistently lives a full human relationship with God life amidst the people, showing that, hey, there's a different way to live life. That there's a different way that, that causes us to respond to the world around us, to the people that we live in our lives. There's a practical way of living that shows the, the life of God, that he, the union with God that he has always created us with and desired us to be, to be with. These people would eventually reject Jesus because they were consumed with the darkness of, our, of their hearts. And so may, may we be willing to let the light of the gospel shine a light on the transformation that God wants, to, wants, to, wants us to have, to, 
to separate us from the union of death and to be reunited with him. Jesus is the word of God who became flesh, who is the light of the world. In John chapter 1, in the beginning was the word, and the word was with God, and the word was God. He was with God in the beginning. Through him all things were made. Without him nothing was made that has been made. In him was life, and that life was the light of all mankind. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. John even call, uh, uh, Jesus even calls this out later in John chapter 8, verse 12. He says, when Jesus spoke again to the people, he said, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will never walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. The word became flesh and dwelt among us because that is the solution to the problem presented and created through our participation with the first tree. And if we understand that sin is not just a disunion between us and God, but it's a union with something else entirely, a union with death, then we start to see why Jesus coming in the way that he did, God sending him the way that he did matters and why it was needed. The incarnational life of Jesus is how God accesses the ability to take care of the problem that we had created. Our response to God then and how we respond to light of Jesus is our response to sin. Do we understand that God has always desired union with us without destruction? And that our sin not only rips the union apart, but it unifies us with death and destruction that is separate from God. When we see our sin in this way, why it's so problematic and more than just a mistake, we can ask ourselves, what are we uniting ourselves to? So the way that we live our lives, what, what has our priority, what has our focus, what has our thinking, what directs our thought about who God is and what he's done, what, what are we uniting ourselves to? We can be grateful for the incarnation and death and resurrection of Jesus and also recognize that we need the light of the incarnation. The word became flesh to guide our path of transformation. My kids uh, had this project um, last week. I, not a project. They had to ask some questions for, for school. And they had to ask me how I knew what God's will for my life is. Um, and uh, so really interesting question. There's, there's a lot that goes in, into that. Um, Maybe, uh, maybe something, maybe an exercise that you could practice this afternoon or sometime this week. Just write out the question, how do I know what God's will is for my life? And I think, I think the direction of the question was more in line with how do I know God wants me to be, um, uh, to be in the career path that, that I'm in? And I said, I don't have a clue. I don't, <laughs> I don't, I don't, I don't know. Um, no, I didn't say that at all. Um, but what I told them is that God's will for our lives has nothing to do with our careers. Um, it has to do with everything, 100% of what we do. And it's through the 66 books of the Bible, God's preserved word, his scripture, that that's how I know what God's will is for my life. So how, do you, how do you have confidence that you're doing what God wants you to know, uh, do, doing what God wants you to do? Um, because I, I engage with his word. Um, how significant is his word in scripture? Jesus, the word became flesh and dwelt, dwelt among us. We have God's word that's been shared and preserved for us through, through the text, through the, through the text of the Bible, the 66 books of the Bible. And so how do I know that the transformational work of God that, that I'm becoming, I'm moving from uncreation back towards creation, how do I know that's happened? Because, because I believe that Jesus died and that he rose again. I believe in the incarnation of Jesus, that he lived a life that showed me what that life looks like. And I read his word, I engage with Jesus um, so that I can see where my, where my thinking and where my actions have gotten off track. Um, 
so I can see whether or not I'm uniting myself with God or with death. That's how I know what God's will is for for my life. We're constantly becoming someone. Everything that we do, every decision that we make, there's there's no neutral ground. We're constantly becoming someone or something. Everything that we do. And that transformation that we make along the way, because transformation is happening whether we admit it or not, um, is, is based on whether we choose uh, our life to be based on the unity with God or unity with sin and death. The unity that God desires with us is given freely through Jesus' transformation of our souls, destroying the work of death and sin without destroying us. The incarnation of Jesus is the principal example that we are given that we're meant to be united, of how we are meant to be united with God. His word becoming flesh through us as we are recreated in his image through the blood of Jesus who wipes away the consequences of sin and death. So I just want to read one more text for us. Um, just, just more of a, a practical way in which we respond to knowing what sin actually does. In 2 Timothy chapter 3, Paul writes to Timothy and he's encouraging them, him as a preacher in a, in a local church, as an evangelist, He's saying, but as for you, continue in what you have learned and have, come, have become convinced of because you know, those, you know those from whom you learned it and how from infancy you have known the holy scriptures which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. All scripture is God-breathed and is useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting, and training in righteousness so that the servant of God may be thoroughly equipped for every good work. The way that we begin that transformational process obviously starts with the resurrection of Jesus and with his life lived, and God is doing that work in in our hearts. But the way that we use the word to be transformed as disciples of Jesus is that we allow it to teach us, to teach us what we don't know, because we are more familiar with death than we are with the divine. So we need God's word um, for rebuking us, for calling us out and what's wrong in our life. We need to be called out in our sin. There needs to be a light shown on that so we understand how we are disunited with God. Um, correcting. The rebuking and the correcting may sound like, oh, it's two, the two same things. No, the rebuking leads to the correcting, which is restoration. So this is, this is how we respond and this is how we move toward God in this, in this way, despite the sin. And then the training is applying and practicing the way of Jesus, living out life united with God as it was ever, always meant to be. Our lives belong to God. Jesus redeems and repairs our souls from being ripped away from him. The way of Jesus reunites us with God. And that covenant union with God transforms our life so that death is no longer an end but a transition to a brand new beginning. Um, As we prepare our hearts and minds for communion this morning, I'm just going to read one more text. It's not going to be up on the screen. Um, if you want to uh, close your eyes while, while I read this or keep your eyes open, what, whatever. But I, I, just, I just want us to hear, hear the words that David writes in praise in Psalm chapter 119 about God's word. And keep in mind that, you know, God's word is represented to us through Jesus in the flesh. And, and every week at Velocity, we take communion together because we remind ourselves on this foundation upon which our redemption back to God is, is possible. Why this is, why this is good news and why it had to happen this way. Um, so we're, we're getting ready to take a little piece of bread, a little, a little cup of juice that reminds us of the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus' broken body and his shed blood and how um, God accesses death to be able to destroy it 
for us in this way. So let me just read right before we take communion together. And I'm, I'm just going to read this text, and then we can share, share in that time together. Um, this is what uh, we find in Psalm chapter 119, verse, starting in verse 105. Your word is a lamp for my feet, a light on my path. I've taken an oath and confirmed it that I will follow your righteous laws. I have suffered much, preserved my life, Lord, according to your word. Accept, Lord, the willing praise of my mouth and teach me your laws. Though I constantly take my life in my hands, I will not forget your law. The wicked have set a snare for me, but I have not strayed from your precepts. Your statutes are my heritage forever. They are the joy of my heart. My heart is set on keeping your decrees to the very end.